We are tonight's entertainment. You can't handle the truth. The fire rises. Pizza time. You're a wizard, Harry. So good to be You know how much I sacrifice? You think that's air you're breathing? Groovy. I don't have friends. I got family. We are services so parth what have you been eating you're looking well by the way trent nice to see you we have a podcast Um, we do i had gummy vitamin vitamin d Mm. to be exact the the one that the sun provides yeah i have a whole couldn't just um, go outside bro uh well these are a holdover from the winter time uh when we would mostly be inside and my brown indian complexion requires that i have more vitamin d no the than last my white time... counterparts yes the last time i went to the doctor um they were like you should start taking vitamin d pills because like everyone has seasonal depression and it's pretty much just because no one gets enough vitamin d and i was like oh never put that together yeah what have you been having I'm sipping on some cranberry juice here. Uh, I have adult oh. uh, adult multivitamins sitting bedside, but I don't really take them that much, I think, despite my parents' best efforts. Should I? Do you feel, like, healthier? Do, should we have one on air? Sure, sure, why not? Wait, I'll have, a, I'll have one, too. I think the recommended dose is two, so um, I'm just going to go for it. Wow, they're all, like, stuck together in, like, one mega ball, and I had to, like, pry off. Two. I really love when that happens. Yep. Uh, I'm going in. Is this, a, is this the first time we've eaten on the pod? I feel like one time I made you eat on the pod, or maybe I was eating something, but... This is definitely the definitely... most, like, chewing we've done. Yeah. This is not a regular occurrence. Well, that's done. Yeah. Well, I, I feel better already. I've got a pep right? in my step now. I was depressed before, and now I feel a little bit less depressed. Yeah, the sun's, like, I don't know. Just, uh, what a nice day out, you know? Just I, have know. A new out- I have a new outlook on life. But, Trent, we have a pretty awesome interview. Yeah, and we have a movie to talk about. So maybe we should cut to the intro? Wait, what movie are we doing? Everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah. Yeah, we are. It's a new it's a new movie. People like it. We like it. Trent fell asleep during the movie. We'll get to that. But uh let's cut to the intro. Cue the intro. Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about the movies. Each week we talk about a film and hopefully have a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience working on the picture. This week, who do we have, Trent? Uh, we interviewed Larkin Seipel, the cinematographer of such films as uh, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, Swiss Army Man, and our movie for this week, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Um, it was a really great interview, I think. Do you think so? I think so, too. It was a really great interview for a really great movie, which Trent saw 40% of. Trent, speak on that. Okay, so we have to go back a little bit. Um, only 40%, you think? Oh, wait, sorry, sorry, 60%. You told me I've 40%. Been, yeah. I've, I was missing 40%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that, I've got that's the gen- my bad. I've got the general gist, but the second act I was unconscious for, and here's why. 
Um, so we have to go back to a shoot that you were a part of also to um, a colleague named George who did a medieval movie. And feel free to chime in whenever you're ready. But there was a chest prop that was like wooden, but it, then it was like coated in steel or something. And so it was very, very heavy. And the castle location was like a 45 minute hike, like on foot up this mountain with a fair without, amount of ch- without the chest. Yeah, without the chest. And quite, there's a lot of terrain, and you actually have to, like, climb. The trail that we would normally have to have gone on uh, was all icy and dangerous to go on. I was in sneakers because I didn't have the right shoes. Um, That's just a fun little detail for you guys. And because of that, while we were going up, we couldn't use the correct trail, so we had to go in the middle of the actual woods um, to get the chest up. Because there were leaves on the ground there, which made it a little bit easier for us to carry stuff onto. But the other problem was that there were rocks on there, like large rocks, which made it very difficult to transport. And so a journey that our director was anticipating would take 25 minutes took two hours to get it from bottom to top. So, so in the end, we the chest eventually arrived uh, a lot behind schedule. We filmed the necessary scenes. And... I believe the original plan was that we would take the chest down with us. And then bring it up back up the next day. And then bring it back up with us the next day. And we quickly learned that that would be impossible. Or, like, possible, but no one would be willing to do it. Not something we were going to do. Not for free. As unpaid people, yeah. And so I talked to the director, and I was like, you need to sacrifice the chest and leave this here forever. Because even at the end of the shoot, no way you can convince them to take it down. Because down would be worse than up, I think. And it was still icy and snowy and And dangerous. we're like, we barely got through up without someone getting hurt. So, like, no way we're getting down. Yeah. And um, so he said, fine, let's leave the chest in one of, like, the castle buildings. And we wrapped shooting. And then... Like, two months pass, and it's last week, and George was like, let's go back to the castle, I need, like, one pickup shot, and I don't have enough coverage of the chest opening, and so I'm just gonna do, like, an Evil Dead ground shot, steady cam approaching the chest as it opens. And we were like, okay, fine. So we drove an hour, and then hiked 45 minutes to get to the castle, and then we got there, and the chest was gone. And, um... Somebody either stole it or, uh, well, like, the park security probably threw it away or something. Ja- Jackson Clark recommended that... Oh, the reason we're telling this story is because when we went back and the chest was gone, this was the day I went to see everything everywhere all at once. And it'll... it, it we'll, we'll tie it back in. But um, Jackson thought that if he had been a part of this, he would have thrown it um, off the ledge. And so we checked around all the ledges for a while... And it wasn't there, so we thought that park security may have taken it. But um, then we came back from that, and I was like, Parth, I'm too tired to go see the movie. And Jackson was like, I wanted to go see the movie too, but I was the missing link because I needed to drive all of us. And then I thought, I'm 100% going to fall asleep during the movie, but to save my friendship with these two people, I need to sacrifice like the $12 for the movie ticket and just take an expensive nap, and then have to go back and see the movie a second time before the discussion. Which, to your credit, you did do. But 
we needed to because we had to interview the guy on Saturday and any other day of the week was going to be rough. Yes, but you saw the entirety of the film. I saw the entirety of the film, so... Um, you, could, you could speak on it yeah. right now if you had to. If I had to. But why should I speak on it when we can have our guests speak on it right yeah. now? Larkin Seipel, the DP of the project. Should we Pretty just cool. get into it? Pretty cool. Yeah, let's, let's, let's cut to that. Cue the interview. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Larkin Seipel. He's the cinematographer that's worked on such films as Cop Car, I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore, Swiss Army Man, and our film for today, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So just to start off, um, how did you first get involved in filmmaking, and why did you go down the path of cinematography? Uh, do you want the long story or do you want the short story? The medium. All right. Um... I think I got into filmmaking in a very like American way and that movies, especially in the nineties were kind of coveted and blockbuster was a thing. And it was a big deal to go out and see a movie slash rent one. Um, and the rating system made a lot of movies kind of off the table, like R rated films and et cetera. And at summer camp, I think we watched a movie called 16 candles, mm-hmm. which had like violence and cursing and nudity. And I was shocked. I think it was eight. And I found out the movie was rated PG so then I was like, was like realized I was like, oh, there's this loophole. Like a lot of '80s films um, are basically like soft R-rated films um, with a different rating. So I then spent like the next like two or three years just renting like every '80s film I could get my hands on, in an attempt to like see something you know um, promiscuous, you know, exactly, or something my parents wouldn't let me see. And I kind of just started getting into films that way. Um, mm-hmm. And then eventually, I just and weekends I. would I'd have to go up with my mom to her work and I would just kind of wander a multiplex, you know, like buy like one ticket and see six movies, just kind of hopping theater to theater. Um, but yeah, I did that. And then I was like, you know, when college came around, I was like, I guess I like movies. Um, I started making them in school, um, but I wasn't like, you know, some of these guys out there that were just like making epic films with their friends and shooting on 16 mil in high school and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, so I just went to a, a film school in Boston and there I started working on a lot of film sets and quickly realized that I didn't really want to direct because I found it really painful that a director would work on one project a year. And if I could do something else, like a cinematographer, I could have, you know, a huge collaborative part in many projects within the course of one year. And so I kind of got into the photography side of filmmaking and haven't looked back. So uh, how, how did you first meet the daniels i knew daniel shiner in college he was in one of my roommates comedy troops he was a very funny guy and you know we hung out at parties and things like that um and then later in los angeles when i was in the early music video scene for all a lot of these emerson kids i met them at um an event called video mocker where a bunch of like young directors would screen movie or screen music videos and the daniels showed up and they showed this music video that they had shot on their 5d with their friends and they screened along, you know, some other movies that actually are not the movies, but other music videos that had actual budgets and like known artists and things like that. And their video kind of blew everyone away just in terms of like sheer joy and creativity. And it was done for like a hundred dollars with a camera that everyone owned. Um, but it was just so kind of wonderful. And I remember very 
this is, you know, early twenties, very drunkenly at the party, just like, like, you know, kind of gobsmacked and just like singing their praises and talking about how everyone else was trash and they didn't need money. And I, I remember I embarrassed myself quite a lot, but I, I kind of, kind of, you know, connected back with them and said, I'll anything you guys shoot, I want to shoot it. And then they kind of put me to the test. We shot a bunch of short films like pockets, which I'm not sure if anyone else here has seen. Um, and a bunch of smaller music videos in a very quick and fast manner. Um, and just started kind of steamrolling from there until we made Swissy. Awesome. So like, what are they like to work with? Obviously you're working with two directors, so, but they're one unit, I guess. So what's, is there a process? How is that? the power divided? Um, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know. It's like a hydra, you know, it's two headed, but it's still one beast. Um, mm. I mean, they're really fun to work with is the thing. We generally have fun. There used to be a thing called a Daniel's pitch where they would almost like, you know, for music videos, they used to turn the song on and like, kind of like get warmed up and have this whole routine where they would just talk you through the song as it was happening. But if you watch any of their music videos, it's kind of surreal to watch because their, their whole, like the Daniel's gag or like their thing, is as much story as possible in a small amount of time. Like that's been their concept from the very beginning. Um, so you just kind of watch these two knuckleheads just like absurdly try to pitch you a story and, and convey the emotions and what the camera's doing at the same time in the course of two or three minutes. And that's what it's kind of been like. And they've always left it really collaborative. Like they're, when I'm working with them, their ideas are so absurd or ridiculous. And what makes them beautiful is just like, if we can get people to believe that these are real or to like fall for them, if that makes sense to like, actually like care about what's happening to a corpse that has a boner for a compass, like that would be amazing. And so my job generally was to try to make their ideas feel less stupid um, with photography you know, try to make them feel beautiful or, or real or serene or try to find a way to let the audience say it's okay to say yes, if you will, to like kind of fall in to whatever crazy story they're making. Um, and it hasn't really stopped since. It's been like that on every project. It's just trying to to add an elegance to something that isn't, that is the polar opposite of that. Um, and that's what they usually ask of me and, they, and they're looking for, like, how do we, again, make something like Swissy, doesn't have any right to be as pretty as it was. And, you know, we spent a long time location scouting for the most beautiful forests we could find in the West coast. Um, we actually spent like a whole week driving up the coast of California, um, to find a place where we had a cave and to find a place to have him discover the boner compass and all these absurd, you know, plot points and where we could do it. And we found, I think there's a called a place called Avenue of the Giants, in Northern California, that's just kind of stunning. It feels like a church. That's how like kind of like magnificent it is. Um, but yeah, no, it's just kind of just you know pushing the limit on how much you can care about something so silly. Before we get too distracted with the the major motion pictures you've worked on, I have a little bit of a non sequitur. And you mentioned your music videos, and I saw on your IMDb that you were the DP for Childish Gambino on This Is America and Sweatpants. And I was wondering how your amateur music video career turned into that because those are both like very famous, very good music videos that I've seen before as a person who doesn't watch music videos. Um, well, at the same time that I was working with Daniels as they were coming up, I was also working with uh, Hiro Mirai, who is a music video director um, and is director of a lot of the episodes of Atlanta and a producer on it. Um, so we were kind of um, cutting our teeth at the same time. And it was, it was very fun to kind of jump back and forth between, 
Daniels and Heroes, which are very different projects, but both kind of expect a lot visually. Yeah, that's how I got. I mean, yeah, I just kind of started with Hero at the very beginning. I think I started working with him before Daniels. I can't quite remember. It gets kind of blurry. There was a ton of us all around the age of like 23 or 24 that just get dropped into Los Angeles and we're all kind of hanging out in this early music video scene, um, which is kind of great. We used to have Christmas parties every year for Doomsday and it would be like, 30 directors and like cinematographers and production designers and costumers. It was really kind of a kind of close community at the very beginning. Cause we were all just trying to figure out what the hell was going on. Um, but I met a lot of people through that. Um, and I met hero that way too, but yeah, no, it's, it's funny to, to do like say turn down for what with the Daniels and then do this as America and have them explode for c- completely different reasons. Um, it's, a lot of it's just luck to be honest just that you happen to have, you know, the work of the right director of the right song. So getting into our main topic of the day, how did you get in? Well, you worked on Swiss Army Man, so I'm assuming (laughs) that was your way into everything, everywhere, all at once. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, they've been talking about it for a long time. You know, they, I think originally it was called Bubbles, the idea of all these bubbles connected or bubble theory. I tried to convince them to change it to everything, everywhere, every time, so I could call it E3. To make it easier to say they were they, they were they were not having it like um, t2 e3 yeah exactly i was really pushing that um just like swiss army man we call swissy we wanted i wanted a, i wanted a nice little a shorthand do you have a shorthand for the new movie is it just everything um, everywhere <laughs> all at once all at once it's e-e-a-a-o and i just call it oh. e-a-o now which is okay. makes no sense it's just everyone knows what i'm talking about when i say it um mm-hmm. But no, I, we, we keep looking for a shorthand for it. And it's just one of those films that you just, it never gets there. But um, yeah, they, they had been talking about it for a long time and they would, were kind of teasing like a lot of the fun little pieces to it, like universe jumping and how that made sense and like the different worlds we can do. And we had already played with flashbacks and I got real excited about it because again, the Daniels thing is how much story can you jam into the shortest amount of time is a big part of besides the film everything everywhere all at once besides it having a lot to happen in it all the flashbacks it's like you're watching literally someone's life happen in 20 seconds um and that felt really exciting to like put all this weight onto like five images and like how it's the most blunt way we can make sure that the audience understands what's happening um and it all kind of like the original one for michelle was it stems from her running down an alleyway I'm not sure if all three versions happen, but the first one is she runs and her father yells at her, then she leaves Wayman. And there's one version where she's running and she trips and she lands on sticks and she's blinded and she becomes an opera singer. Um, um, but it was those little those little tiny moments that they kept kind of teasing out. And they actually held back from the, the full scope of the narrative story um, until, until they found like a happy place for it. I always knew it was about a family trying to come together, but I just kind of learned the details slowly. Um, and the first time I read the script, I think I like burned through it just because it was, um, I kind of wanted to know where it was going. Like it was such a crazy script. I was like, what is, where is this all going to end up? Um, and then the second time I read it through trying to figure out how many different things we had to shoot. And I just stopped counting at one point. I was just like, I guess we'll just figure this out as we go. Cause I can't even keep track. So with that being said, like it's takes place like throughout the cosmos, but also it's just like in one building and so I feel like in that sense, it like, how'd you approach it uh, to make like the one building look different? And also, I'm sure there's a lot of like green screens involved. 
there's very little green screen. The only time we really used green screen was when they were directly in front of the bagel, top of the mm. staircase. And then every other time we actually got an inflatable bagel, which is just like a giant inflatable <laughs> inner tube, we just kind of put up there as reference. But for the most part, there's little, there's, there's only like, there's a sequence where they're fighting and every hit they go through is, is a different universe. So we had to build oh, a yes, lighting. I was going to ask how you did that. We, we found all the stock footage and then we built, basically we had to build a lighting setup for every 12 frames and we timed it. And we built it on like a click track, so the actors would land and the lighting would switch um, uh, to like a sunset, to a house on fire, to lit by sparklers, which was a really huge pain in the ass to try to figure out what does it look like to be surrounded by a bunch of sparklers. And that was all on green screen. The annoying part about that was we shot that with Jobu and Michelle's double because it was after, during the pandemic. And then this really elaborate lighting system that we built that looked very silly. We then had to basically do a diagram of it and take photos and then there was a, a team in paris had to recreate it where, where michelle was so we had to bring michelle in for basically 10 hours of reshoots because she couldn't get back to the u.s or not reshoots but pickups for the things that we couldn't finish on the film um and they had to then recreate it on a stage there um luckily um i had a friend named kaname who's a cinematographer there who does like a wonderful job and you can't even tell the work he did that's how seamless um his talent is um, but that was that was a fun Zoom from midnight till 8 a.m. in Los Angeles while, while they worked at the proper time in, the, in Paris. But the building, the building, we actively tried to do the diehard approach. And like, how mm. can we make one one building compelling? So we, we started out in this big atrium, massive cubicles and, and played of scale. And then after that, we started working into like smaller cubicle spaces that were window based. And then we went into like hallways where the lights are turned off and it's just security lighting. Our production designer also started pushing the idea that the building was under construction from the very beginning. It's kind of subtle. Um, but you, as, as you're making your way through it, you're seeing people working on it. And so later on, as they get towards the end, you know, there's like a, there's the, the butt plug fight is actually in a construction area because we were so tired of shooting cubicles. We're like, well, what if we just covered the cubicles and like, you know, tarps and put in construction lighting and things like that. And then we shifted it actually ends back where it started, which is the atrium. So we go back to the ground floor and have a dusk feeling. And then the very end, which is what we call the empathy fight, where she makes her way up the stairs, kind of using kindness to stop people. The lighting that for there actually makes no sense. It's this big, giant, golden softbox that's kind of vibrating with like this kind of chaos. I guess it's the, the bagel light, if you will, this big pulsing top light that's happening. That's basically what we did. We did actively try to find different looks and to, to switch it up for every scene because we thought uh, I've seen movies that are all set in an office space and that kind of soft overhead lighting gets pretty monotonous after a while. So in terms of how you shot the film, did you shoot on film or digital? Because I'm pretty sure you shot on film. You've shot on film for other projects and like what your preference is or if it's just dependent on the project. This wing was all digital. We wanted to shoot film for the flashbacks and for the rock sequence. We thought it'd be really funny if we shot the rocks on IMAX. Yeah. Like we didn't, we didn't, <laughs> we really wanted to, cause I was like, guys, what if, what if they do play this in IMAX? How like mind blowing would it be for that, for the audience to be in there and see this little indie. And then all of a sudden the full screen is filled with rocks. We ultimately didn't do it because we were, um, when we shot the rocks, we did it with a crew of like five people um super scrappy middle of pandemic 
um, cars getting stuck in the middle of a desert that was four hours away from Los Angeles. Um, but originally the plan was there for it. But by the time you get to that point, you know, production is not excited to spend money on IMAX film when they'd rather, you know, have, you know, better wardrobe or, you know, more lights to pull off the action sequences and things like that. Um, but in general, when it comes to shooting film and digital, I think the product, not the product, but the projects kind of call for it themselves. This one had a lot of in-camera effects and speed ramping and high speed and just visual effects in general, just for the workflow and, and digital made sense. And I think that Daniel's like the immediacy of digital. They like to see what they're working with. And we also had so many different looks that we were able to build a lot of the, the LUTs in advance. So we could kind of figure out like, you know, we could actually light the scenes of knowing how it was going to look in camera. Um, but the film I did right after called To Leslie was like a much even smaller indie. Um, we shot that on 35 because we we knew it was going to be scrappy and we wanted um, to kind of embrace the flaws. And I think film is wonderful at, at making flaws look elegant and natural and, and making them not really look like flaws. And that's usually the reason why I, I tend to shoot on film is uh, there's a real beauty to, to it when it's unlit. It feels much more real. Um, whereas digital unlit can can look real crap real quick. So what, what, what kind of lens? Oh, sorry. I was just gonna ask what kind of lenses you were shooting on, but it seems like Parth was gonna ask. Uh, um, and what your like go to lens measurement is, just in general. The so there's a lot of universes. So there's the what we'll call the the action verse or the main universe that does become the action universe um, was on Zeiss Super Speeds. Um, which is, you know, the lens that I kind of, I think everyone theoretically comes up working with and that it's a fast lens that can open to a one three. It's sharp, but not too sharp. Um, and I kind of fell out of love with it. Like, you know, a couple of years after college, cause that's all I shot it on all I shot with. Um, and then lately it's the only lens I really want to shoot with and that it's again, sharp, but not too sharp. Um, has well has focus as well doesn't distort too much but we shot we shot that lens for you know the whole opening 15 minutes and everything um into the irs building and then once um once waymond um eats the chapstick and channels his um fanny pack fighter mode uh we switched to anamorphic there's like a the camera like is above him and pulls back and that's spherical but you can feel the bars start to slowly drift in and then the rest of the sequence is all done on, on Hawk anamorphics to again, to kind of give it a little larger than life feeling um, kind of like what they did with Die Hard, which is a movie that's shot on anamorphic that doesn't seem like it should be given all the tight spaces and low light requirements, but it, it looks awesome. And so we kind of wanted to embrace that aesthetic for the whole action sequence. And then, you know, it kind of fluctuates between different places. I think hot dog hands was shot on super Baltars to give it a softness and a romanticism. We shot in Canon K35s for the Wong Kar Wai verse because when they get wide open, they have like a really beautiful bokeh. And then we knew we were going to be playing really shallow because we had to dress an alleyway in downtown LA to feel like it was Hong Kong. Um, the 2001 monkey scene was shot on old anamorphics called Tadeos to try to make it feel like they were flawed and the image felt a little more filmic. I was trying to, you know, we had a whole new universe we cut called the Noodleverse, which was shot on a probe lens about a baby about a baby macaroni that was stuck in a pot of pasta and evelyn like evelyn evelyn threads the macaroni and pulls it to the surface to save it um we spent two days shooting pasta <laughs> with animate with like pup with like pot like puppet pasta um i'm pretty sure that'll be on the bts but it was it was like potentially too far for the film to go 
Um, Rakakuni was originally going to be an ode to like early PTA movies like Punch Drunk Love and Magnolia. Um, we shot anamorphic and we embraced like the strong color themes of like red and blue and white. And then um, we couldn't ultimately light it the way that they had lit Magnolia and et cetera. Like we were excited to do like a big running sequence at the end, similar to how they dropped the frogs. But we <laughs> we spent all the money on just getting the the stunt the stunt the stunt actors on a wireless on a rig so they could actually mm. run. Um, it had nothing left to light it. So that whole scene ended up just being lit with the practicals that were there as opposed to like a big bright backlight slamming down on the street. Um, but it was small things. And, and a lot of, a lot of the lensing and looks weren't, you know, they started out as like, it'd be cool if it looked like that movie. But then when we referenced them, they didn't look how we remembered them. If that makes sense. Like our memories were much more romantic about how the films looked and felt. And we ended up kind of veering away from the references a lot it was like that's where it started but then we kind of pushed it and there is a reason we pushed it too is you know there's there's a lot of universes in this film and and the daniels really wanted to make sure it was clear what universe you were in um so they you know they went bigger on the wardrobe we went bigger on the colors and the lighting so that when you clicked between universes there wasn't confusion you're like okay this is where i am this is where i am um that was part of the reason for why it looks that way I'm glad you brought up the Wong Kar Wai verse because that was going to be one of my questions because I was like, <laughs> Kei Hui Kwan, had, while I was watching, I was like, this is like Tony Leung, like this looks like that. And I was going to ask about that scene, like the conversation where he's talking about like being nice is how he fights, being kind is how he fights. Like what was it like shooting that scene? Just because that was, that's one of my favorites in the entire movie. Um. Well, that whole sequence with him was was really magical because you know, Key we've been working we've been working we've been working with him the whole film and he's closer to like his normal character than he is to those other characters in a way. Um, and I was I was remember being a little skittish when Daniels were like, "Hey, we have the actor from da- from Indiana Jones and Goonies. He's going to play the lead." I was like, "Oh my god, that's exciting! Can he still act?" Um, and watching him play Waymond and being this very like beta character and then watching him like kind of pull it out and be like a character from a Wong Kar Wai film this like very smooth honest like debonair was was pretty magical to watch and the first time we we did um what's called step printing which is basically just you know you you do a low frame rate and the camera moves and the world starts to blur um and you you do that in camera but if you play it back at 24 it looks like high speed so you have to basically add a frame to each of it to get that blurriness and the first time we did that of him on top of the stairs looking down at evelyn everyone was like oh shit like he's gonna do it and then when we did the 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 alleyway scene was the last thing we shot or on the very last day of filmmaking and it was actually raining at the end of it and we this is an alleyway that was behind the theater they were in and watching the first time we did it we weren't really sure how key was gonna play it and he just turned it on like he doesn't smoke cigarettes but he boom you know you, you wouldn't you couldn't tell it was i mean that whole scene we were just kind of standing back in awe we, we had a, i think we were going to do more complicated camera moves on it at one point and we just saw the performance and we we're like let's just let him do it like just we don't need to do anything just let's just watch um and that's the yeah the one time in the film i think we short-sighted things where we put the actors on the hard left of their eye line to kind of force the audience to pay attention to what's happening to them. I don't think we do it anywhere else in the film. It was awesome. And I took notice of it. (laughs) Great. 
that sort of leads to our next question. Uh, so were things like malleable on set in terms of like the performance or like the camera moves per se, or were things like storyboarded very heavily? There was not one storyboard in this whole film. <laughs> oh my God. Holy shit. Um, were there the, shot lists? Yes. They were okay. made in the car on the way to set generally. That's nice. not true. That's not true. Um, <laughs> We, we walked through a lot of the scenes in advance. Um, and I think the key to, to making good indies, I mean, any, any making good or anything is, is really when you location scout it, like really walking through and knowing, you know, how you're going to shoot it and why you're going to shoot it that way. And, you know, that the one car Y sequence was a little spooky and that, you know, we scouted this alleyway during the day. It's just like this boring, dirty alleyway. There's nothing elegant to it. Another production was on the other side of the fence, and we were like, oh, shit, how are we going to put tarp over the fence? How are we going to hide all these trucks? Um, but COVID had happened, so when we shot there on the day, they had been cleared out. But we knew that we liked the idea of, of short-siding them and looking down the alley, and we are like, oh, well, we'll embrace that. Um, but a lot of the other scenes, you know, the Daniels had very specific, like just the first scene where they're meeting with Deirdre Bobirdra, and doing their taxes and Evelyn is in two different universes talking and having to like pan left and right and then talk to like, you know, um, Deirdre in one universe and then Waymond in the other, they had all that figured out. But I guess the, the idea was that when we scouted these places, we used them as muses and it wasn't like, like the locations on the script were very open. And so when we, you know, when we found this alleyway, we we had we had you know we adjusted it because it was like oh it's a T like we weren't planning on that so we'll have them linger inside that little cove, and then a lot of the office space scenes were like well what if we just moved it down here, so it was it was pretty malleable the fight sequences were all pre-vised, um, which is much harder than storyboarding and that we you know that Daniels worked with the Lee brothers who they found on YouTube and they designed fight sequences with the them and then their team Marshall Club would actually go and shoot out these crazy fight sequences and. Daniels would ask for a two-minute fight, and we'd get back like a five, seven-minute fully choreographed fight that was cut together, and then pare it down. And then once we had done that, we would then go to location and figure out what parts of that could we take and use, and how to how to utilize it. Because a lot of the a lot of the fighting is choreographed around the camera. That isn't like it's a lot of like very ridiculous shots of like you know of Danny Pack hitting a guy in the face and his head knocks back and hits someone else who hits someone else. Like a lot of it. Um, was previous, which um, is the only way those fights could have happened. So even though we didn't do storyboarding, I think previsiting is a lot more time and energy in it, but it was mainly just for the fights. That gives me so much anxiety. We also, we also, we also, it was 45 minutes away from Los Angeles to get to Simi Valley where we shot it. Um, and I, we kind of treated it like a location film. So I, I drove to Dan Kwan's house every morning and then me, Quan, Shinert, and then Jonathan Wong, our producer, got in a van that um, the Daniels assistant drove. And so we'd spend 45 minutes kind of prepping on the way to set, talking about what was coming up and how we were going to do it. And then 45 minutes on the way back from set, kind of downloading and talking about the next day. And having that hour and a half every day with them um, was really helpful. And then we did the same thing on Swiss Army Man, but just trying to like be able to talk to someone about the day's work in a low stake situation is important. Cause as soon as they get out of that car, there's like, you know, six departments all have questions for them. Actors all have questions for them. And so being able to actually, you know, 
talk to them about what we're going to do and, and, and have a kind of a creative space where things could change really helped. So I was, you've spoken about the aspect ratio changing, um, was how early on in the process was that integrated? Um, they, I, I had always, I, I'd wanted to do it in camera aspect ratio change before I'd seen it done before really well, bizarrely, I think in the hunger games sequel. Um, oh um, yeah. It, it, isn't that when it, they, they go up into the hunger games? Yeah. It it's, expands it's, to it's, IMAX. it's so well done. Um, as much as you don't like pop movies, Francis Lawrence is like a brilliant director and like, I forget she's in the elevator she just witnesses like her one friend get murdered in front of her. And then she starts plunging towards the surface to basically kill all these people. She's just met. She just met. And she's basically having a breakdown. And then like on top of that, this thunderous music is happening. And then like, it's not just going, it's not just shifting from two, three, five to like one, eight, five, it's shifting from two, three, five to full IMAX. So it's like, it's crazy. And they have like a good 30 seconds to do it. It's a very effective scene. I'm not necessarily like a, a fan of those movies, but that scene I remember being like, that is great filmmaking. That is someone actually doing this in a really cool way. Um, and ours is, is, is much subtler. You know, we, you know, we stretch it out. I don't think most people notice when we do it. And that was the goal. Um, but even early on, the Daniels were watching montages of different formats. And they really liked the idea of how messy it was to actually like quickly cut between these different formats. And at the same time, they also thought it was really helpful to have a shift in format to to inform the audience that they were, they were in a different universe. But for the most part, you know, a lot of the, I think Hot Dog Fingers is two to one because we 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 lent we leaned towards Netflix like rom coms in a way. Initially, we looked at uh, referencing Todd Haynes's Carol, but we just thought that was a crime. <laughs> slash we couldn't slash we slash we couldn't do anything nearly as beautiful as what they had done. Like it was it was like we were going for it, and then we we're like, no, nah, we can't. It's not going to work. Um, I love Carol as a reference point for Hot Dog Fingers. Carol, yeah. Hunger Games, and then there's you. <laughs> no, I, I, I say we referenced it as Carol, but no, we never fully fully did that. We didn't, yeah. Yeah, not, didn't get close to it. Uh, so is there a scene that proved particularly difficult to get correct or one you're most proud of or favorite universe or Ratatouille reference, whatever? Um. The hardest scene to shoot, well, it's different. The one thing to get right was the what we call the empathy fight where Evelyn marches up the stairs. Um, and on top of like having a shifting lighting that was a rhythm that we programmed into the board by hand, kind of like a beat machine. You had people on wires. You had paper floating around. And then we had to, we had to get – we didn't have – like we had to be very careful about how we spent money. So we, we got techno cranes for that, you know, these cranes that can extend the camera out. We're all really excited, and it's like the only reason we have these cool devices is because we don't know how to get a camera over a water fountain or to like over a stair. So um, it was it was just very hard to pull off. I never thought a stairway sequence would be so painful to shoot, but it, it's we spent days just trying to figure out like how to get the camera there, how to make it elegant, how to have ten people on a staircase and put a camera in between them. That was the hardest thing to shoot, but the I think the most um, most apt answer for that is the rock universe, which mm. we shot four hours south of LA um, at a at a location called the Anza Borrego that I'd, I had been to before and I had actually um, proposed to my wife there because it was so stunning. And I kept mentioning it to them as we were shooting. I was like, guys, we got to go back. It looks like it's a different planet. 
there's nothing there and they were they, they were like why can't we just go shoot it in the woods and i was like because it's not going to be epic and we're just going to be staring at this one image for like you know like five minutes um and eventually i convinced them to drive down with me and so we spent five hours driving down to a road that's not a road but just literally just a bunch of sand and we turned off and then two of our cars got stuck Wow. And then we had, then we got into one car and kept driving with fear that we were going to get stuck. And we made it out there, and they all agreed it was pretty epic. Um, but when we ended up shooting there, it was like 115 degrees. One of our cars overheated; it ran out of water. We had to do it in one day. We only gave ourselves six hours um, when there was a crew of five people. Um, and I, I posted about it on Instagram, and I, kind of, I think I phrased it as, you know, it was really fun to do something with your friends, trying to basically make something so stupid seem so great. And that felt like the best version of that movie is really making it incredibly painful to go and shoot just two rocks somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Like kind of that, that just felt appropriate. So kind of closing out, uh, well, I guess one last everything everywhere question is just how long was the shoot? We have, I think we were scheduled for 38 days. We finished around 36 because of COVID. We had two days left. Oh, and, oh, and wow. then we yeah so we but then we had you know we we did you know a day shooting these rocks um a day or two shooting this noodle verse that never happened um these mu- these much smaller pared down shoots and then we had another two days like f- probably a year later to shoot um hot dog fingers 2001 sequence of the monkeys um and then some green screen stuff so you know it was probably 40 something days but you know but the actual shoot itself was only 36, if I'm correct. But it was between yeah, between 36 and 40 days. And the other thing I wanted to ask is, obviously you and the Daniels worked on Swiss Army Man, and I was wondering if there's any, I'm sure there's a lot, but is there any like specific thing that you took from Swiss Army Man that like informed everything everywhere? Swissy was really hard to make. Um, we had 10 hour days. It was a 23 day shoot in three different cities that we had to fly to. It had wire work, underwater work, bears, fire explosions, um, far harder, I think than this movie. Um, and I think what we found out on that is you can do a lot with very little. And so a lot of, a lot of this movie, you know, there's so many scenes that are just two seconds long. On Swiss, we kind of figured out, like, if we plan really hard for the stuff that we care about, we can, I don't know, it's, there's not a great way to put it. But basically, yeah, if, if you really care about it, you can fight for it and still get it. And that's what happened on this film. There were so many small pieces that every department would be like, I care about this. I'm going to make this great. Like hot dog hands. We had no money for it. It was just going to be this cute thing. And our department was like, we're changing the whole set to mustard and ketchup and tan and hot dog pink and we're going to add cats like they really killed themselves on it um trying to make it look amazing and now hot dog fingers is like the main takeaway of the movie from a merchandising standpoint like they're on the a24 website already as i'm sure you've seen yep that was definitely the uh i didn't think they could be topped but i think rakakuni um has has a dueling fan base um we'll see we'll see which sequel gets made uh, so, uh, before the Big Kahuna final question, just what are you working on now that you can talk about, I guess? Yeah, no, I I, I finished a, a TV show called Gaslit, 
with um, Sean Penn and Julia Roberts that was set in the seventies about the Watergate scandal. That was, that was really fun and exciting to do a show of trying to kind of create that look. Um, and now I'm working on a, a TV show of a 24 Netflix called beef um, with Steven Yoon and Ali Wong um, kind of a mischief and mayhem set in a modern Los Angeles. It's pretty fun. It's pretty, it's pretty unique storytelling. Awesome. Trent, is it time for the big kahuna final question? Yeah, I'd say so. So the big kahuna final question is just what's the last good or sorry. What's the last great, not good, great movie that you watched? And it could be a rewatch or a new release. Great, not good movie. Mm. I mean, I, I know that I know the answer in my head, but I don't I'm trying to think if there's something more obvious, like a great, not good movie. I just rewatched Blade again, like the original Wesley Snipes one. Yeah. I love it. I love it, man. The movie ends with him saying like some motherfuckers are always trying to ice skate up hills. That's like the best that's the best like finishing line of any of any action film I've ever seen. Um, it's a ridiculous movie. My friend just watched it and he was like, that's terrible. He had never seen it. And I guess it just because I grew up watching it. I was like, it is pure cinema. It is wonderful. The open, I keep trying to, to work on a film that will let me remake the opening um, sprinkler, sprinkler sequence when he's in a club and awesome. it rains down blood. Like it's just the best worst movie. Um, and they're remaking it now, so I'm ex- I'm curious if they're going to keep the blood sprinklers or not. I, I, hope they do. I was just going to say they're they're going to shoot that pretty soon. Right? Yeah, they got a lot topical. to live up to. We'll see what happens. Um, Trent, you want to close us out? Sure. Thanks so much to Larkin Seipel. Uh He's worked on a bunch of cool movies, but most recently, Everywhere, Every Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which is uh, in theaters. You should go see it. It's really good. Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Two E Two A O. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> how was that trent was that a good interview i really enjoyed it it was efficient i think he we were told we had like 40 minutes and we made and you know country girls make do yeah i think i've edited this interview it's mm. 37 minutes long Whoa, um, tight. So we, we made it. Yeah. And a guest we'd love to have come back on, you know? Yeah. Didn't he allude to that? He said, like, maybe we'll talk in a year or something. He did. I don't remember if that was on air or off, but he did say that. Cool. Um, We've never had a return guest. Well, I mean, we've had a return discussion guest, but we've never had a return interview. No, we've talked close. It. We've had some close ones, but uh, it's just the stars have never aligned. But there's mm-hmm. a few we'd love to have back on. Maybe one day. Um, all right. Should we wrap up? Yeah, so I guess next week we'll be discussing this film. No surprises there. Um, and after that, we're not at liberty to say what comes next, but I think we've got some some cool stuff. Do we? We can I... we could probably No, nah, let's save it for next week. Let's save it for next week. You want to part? Well, Parth, it's the end of the episode. We can Come on. Just the boys are here now. I guess that's fair. Uh, all right, sure. We interviewed the production designer of Richard Linklater's film Apollo ten and a half, and he's also just kind of just been Richard Linklater's production designer for the past like twenty years. It seems. Yeah, he worked on A Scanner Darkly. He worked on Bernie. He worked on Last Flag Flying. He worked on Bad Everybody News Wants Bears. Some. Was like his first movie. Yeah, so pretty cool guy. Very fun to talk to. Very fun interview. I thought. Um, so you can look forward to that in two weeks, and then after that. We have some exciting stuff planned. 
Do but we? nothing question we mark. But we do, but not stuff we're at liberty to talk about because it's not stuff that is as of yet happened. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um I'd say that's enough of that. Yeah. Uh thanks for listening guys. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Give us a rating good rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. Whatever you're listening on. You should recommend us to a friend or your mom or your aunt or your yeah. little bro or your little brother. Tell them about the yeah. show, bro. Please do. Um and see you next week, guys.